0: Welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. This episode is recorded live Friday, July 27th, 2018. On this series, I interview people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host today, Dr. Joel Ying, and I'm a physician, educator, storyteller. You can find me online at livingthepresentmoment.com. Visit the blog, read the monthly newsletter, join the mailing list, join a course or online study group, and of course, this podcast. I'm excited about today's topic, everyday espionage. My guest today is Andrew Bustamante, and Andrew uh, tells me that he has um, been a member of the U.S. Air Force, a combat veteran, a former CIA intelligence officer, a Fortune 10 corporate advisor, and you can find him online at andrewbustamante.org. Now, I met him on the stage of Toastmasters, the district convention for the International Speech Contest, and later he handed me this intriguing flyer about a workshop, and the workshop was entitled Everyday Espionage, The Knowledge, Art, and Impact of Spying. He talks about how espionage shapes your daily life, and you can learn about spycraft, all these fabulous, fascinating buzzwords, <laughs> learn about spycraft to gain personal and professional advantages. And I thought, wow, it's quite fascinating. And one of, one of the things on, on the flyer said, one life, no compromises. How are you doing out there, Andrew?
1: I'm well, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for the confirmation that the promotional material was uh, interesting and effective. You don't often get that <laughs> feedback, and I'm glad to have it.
0: Yeah, it's... it's but quite intriguing. I definitely wanted to read more about it. I guess I wanted to start with, what does that mean to you, one life, no compromises?
1: Wow, that's a, that's a big question, and uh, it's an excellent question. I come from a world where, uh, where compromise means something different than it means to most people. For most, compromise means that you find the middle ground between two opposing perspectives, right? It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You want your politicians to compromise. You want your children to compromise. You want your teammates on a work team to compromise. And it's become this concept that many people consider to be a net positive. But I have a very different perspective on compromise because in my world, the world of espionage, the world of spycraft, the world of international intrigue, compromise happens when somebody does something that they shouldn't do. And that's the second definition of compromise. When a Mm -hmm. ship's hull is compromised, that means that the hull is weak or the hull has a hole in it. When the fuselage of an airplane is compromised, it means it's no longer safe. And that's the world, that's the form of compromise that that comes to mind when I think of compromise. And I find that too often the two different definitions are treated separately when they're very much the same. Because even when two people compromise in terms of an opinion – What's really happening is that neither of their opinions is being pursued. They are both giving up on what they believe to be the right thing, and they're reaching a compromise. And we have somehow started thinking that that compromise that they reach is better than one of their two opposing viewpoints. Um, I'm mm-hmm. starting to look around at our world and, and look, at, uh, look at the everyday life that I live with, with my family, with my peers, with my workplace – and I'm starting to second guess. Maybe that compromise is not the right direction. So my, my mission in life now is to challenge all people to ask themselves the question whether or not compromise is really what they want to be doing. Um, and obviously, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pursuing a passion where my life is not going to be compromised. My decisions will not be compromised. Um, I will remain open to other people's perspectives and if their perspective is superior to mine, then I'm challenging myself to accept and embrace their perspectives rather than watering it down to reach some sort of compromise.
0: Mm. I like that. That's great imagery, the breaching the hull. I never think of that when we think of compromise. You're right. I,
1: I, don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I know that with only one life to live, it's not worth it to play it safe. Sometimes you have to take the risk if you ever plan to make a difference.
0: How did you come to, uh, I guess, the world of spycraft and and later translate that to everyday life? I, I guess, how did, how did that happen?
1: Well, it's, it's it's two different directions. There's how I became a spy and then there's how I applied it to the everyday world. And You become a spy through any number of ways uh, and there's... Spy is a term that's often misconstrued because it's, it's used to describe so many different things. So the, when I talk about a spy, what I'm specifically talking about is the person who works for an intelligence agency who goes out and steals secrets to defend their country. That's, that is the spy when I'm talking about being a spy. Uh, and in, in proper terminology, that person is called an intelligence officer. So whether you're an intelligence officer for the British Secret Service or the British MI6, or whether you're an intelligence officer for Israel's Mossad or the United States' CIA, when you're an intelligence officer, your job is to defend your country, and you are called a spy. But then there's also those quote-unquote spies who give the secrets of their country away. In our world, those people are called assets. Those are traitors to their country who have been wooed to the other side by an intelligence officer Uh, so you know in boilerplate terms an intelligence officer's job is to go out in the world and find assets who are willing to give away the secrets for their country Um, Hmm. just some kind of overarching terminology to help us frame the conversation I became a spy I became an intelligence officer um, by way of formal recruitment from CIA itself. I was a military officer with an Air Force Academy background, uh, and I was a, a combat veteran from the U.S. Air Force, and I happened to find myself working in nuclear missiles, which has one of the highest clearances in the military, and when the time came for me to consider whether I wanted to stay with the Air Force or, or make a career out of the Air Force, um, I had op- I had opted... To pursue a more peaceful direction, I never really much cared for shaving, and I didn't like wearing a uniform every day. <laughs> I was painfully aware of my single status at the age of uh, 27, so I decided that I was going to pursue a you know a lifelong dream to to travel the world, and I was going to apply to the Peace Corps. So I went online and I applied to the Peace Corps. And there's this point in the process where a big Red screen pops up and it says that if you continue your application from this point forward, you may be disqualified from other government service. And based on your personality profile and your record of accomplishments, you may qualify for other government roles. Uh, Would you be, uh, or please wait 72 hours before continuing your application or risk forfeiting these other opportunities? Huh. When I saw – I don't think anybody wants to see a red screen when they're in the middle of any <laughs> government application. <laughs> so when I saw the red screen and it said, wait 72 hours, the last thing I was going to do was disobey orders, right? I had been trained too well in following the rules. So I did exactly what it said, and I, I saved my application. I stopped right there. And about a day later, I got a phone call from, you know, from an unidentified unknown number. It was just an area code, 703. And it told me that, uh, that I, would be quali- I was qualified for um, roles in supporting national defense and asked me if I would be willing to fly up to Washington, D.C. to engage further at, at Langley. And, you know, essentially I, just, I got a cold call from the CIA. And when that happens, there's really only one answer. <laughs> so I waited for my tickets to come in the mail and then – I flew my way to D.C. and went through their process, and they must have liked me because that's that was how I became a spy. Wow. The second the second half of your question, and I mean I don't want to interrupt you, so if you have any follow up questions, you're welcome to it. But I still owe you a second answer.
0: <laughs> go ahead.
1: Well, my second your second question was how do I how do I apply what I did in the intelligence sector into everyday life, and uh, that process wasn't nearly as smooth. When you leave the military. The military has a process for helping its veterans to understand their value in society. Um, and that's why veterans have veteran support programs and veteran training. And there's it's not always very smooth or very effective, but there's an avenue there to help veterans reacclimate to normal life. When you leave the intelligence infrastructure, there is no support network there. Part of it is because the intelligence sector has a very low attrition rate, so there's probably no financial benefit to um, helping former CIA officers, former NSA officers, DIA, NGA, you name the three-letter acronym. There's such a low attrition rate that there's probably no financial benefit to training or equipping them to reacclimate. But the other side of that is the fact that they don't want you to leave. Once you're there, you become... You know, too high risk or too high value a resource, so there's no incentive for them to help prepare you to transition back into the real world. Um, so when my wife and I, because my wife was also a former agency officer, we met and married at the agency. When we started debating whether or not it was time for us to leave the agency and grow our family outside of the world of, int- of espionage, um, we had a hard decision to make because we were going to have to integrate on our own uh, ultimately, we decided to leave. We did have challenges finding our way in the current world because we had skills that were only really valuable in one specific sector, and uh, and we didn't have a and we didn't have a resume. <laughs> the uh, the agency falsifies all of your documentation. You live undercover, so we basically mm-hmm. were trying to sell ourselves on a resume that we didn't write, that was full of things that we didn't do and it wasn't really very effective. So as we learned how to navigate this different world, we realized that we were leaning on the very same espionage skills that we had developed at the agency. We learned how to network with people. We learned how to have intentional conversations with a specific end goal. Instead of stealing secrets, now the end goal was to demonstrate that we were educated and we were articulate and we were um, able to be Uh, you know, fast learners and dedicated to some sort of purpose or mission in life. So we found ourselves applying our agency skills in all sorts of everyday scenarios from buying a car to, you know, negotiating for a a house uh, to finding a job. And that was when it clicked. That's when we realized that the skills that we have could help people every day In work, in life, in relationships, and that's how everyday espionage was born. Huh.
0: Fascinating. What are the main things that people find interesting about uh, everyday espionage? It's kind of a.
1: I find that they're. Yeah, I hope it's an effective buzzword. It's a very clear description, I think, of what we're trying to do. But people come in and they they find different parts of it interesting. I find that people come into the, the conversation and whatever they're coming from, whatever world they bring with them, that's the lens that they use from which to see everyday espionage. So as an example, I've had one, uh, one woman who has been attending our conferences who has uh, been in contact with me, and she comes from a history of domestic violence, a history of uh, Of unpleasant interactions with uh, with strangers who have threatened her physically, or who have um, violated her trust in terms of something, some kind of physical manifestation, whether it's bullying or or stalking. So when she comes to Everyday Espionage, she is absolutely invested in when we teach situational awareness, when we teach safety, when we teach how to uh, create a plan to go to work or come home or have variation in your routine to make sure that a potential threat doesn't see you as an easy threat. So that's hmm. where she comes from. That's what she takes the most away from. Uh, I have other folks who have come who have taken a great deal of interest in the mental aspect of how you how spies look at the world. Uh, we don't look at the world from our perspective perception out like most people do most people look at a tree or look at a house or look at another car and they're thinking about themselves and how they relate to that car or that tree or that house Hmm. spies look at the world from the outside in we are always thinking about how somebody's sitting in that other car somebody's sitting in that house somebody's sitting next to that tree when those other people look at us what are they seeing what are they feeling That's how spies see the world, and there are a number of business applications, relationship applications, uh, personal development and professional development applications. When you shift your paradigm from looking at the world through your eyes to looking at yourself through somebody else's eyes, those are kind of the two big camps that folks have so far fallen into, either the cognitive challenging their own mindset uh, approach or the tangible, physical benefit of knowing how to protect yourself, how to protect your family, how to prepare for the worst, how to build a plan, those kinds of, those are the two big worlds that people have found merit so far.
0: Mm. What do you think is the reason for, um, I, I guess most of us going through the world with one view versus the uh thought of how it looks from the outside?
1: You know, it's, I don't think it's anybody's fault. I'll, I'll throw that out there right away. It's most certainly not a matter of education or selfishness or ignorance or anything negative that we might think. That's, that is not to blame for how people go through life. There's a process that we go through at the agency where we're conditioned to see the world differently. We have a training program, we have an educational program, and then of course we surround ourselves with other intelligence officers. So you become immersed in this environment that shifts your perspective on life. That process is a conditioning process, a very deliberate conditioning process just like when you train your dog to be a guard dog or when you train your children to be contributing members of society. That's all a conditioning process. Well, most people have been conditioned by a passive life. They've been conditioned by the teachers who taught them whatever they needed to learn in grade school, by parents who taught them and took care of them, by grandparents or spouses or any number of, you know, you go through the entire life cycle of any normal person and you are conditioned to essentially follow what somebody else tells you to do. And we become a a culture of followers, a, you know, a, a culture that values followership. And I think that's why in our culture we value leadership so much. But when you look at most leaders, what are most leaders? Most leaders are people who have followed for a long period of time until they went through some sort of process where they were identified as a leader. Very few leaders have actually just gone out and led. They were assigned a leadership role and now they're called a leader. Um, that, that's a difficult transition when you don't have experience as a leader. And that's why you see so many leaders following, falling back into that followership pattern. Managers and middle managers who just do what they're told by their CEO. Those people are not leading. Those people are just following from a title that says leadership. So I think Mm. most of us have been passively conditioned to follow, to do what we're told. And when you're conditioned that way, it's your natural inclination to seek the answer from outside of yourself instead of seeking the answer from within yourself. Rather than being confident in your decisions, rather than being confident that you know how to take a risk or that a risk is worth taking, instead you're constantly seeking validation from outside before you make the decision or before you take the risk. When you follow that process, you're destined to be disappointed because the person that you would be seeking that guidance from is doing the exact same thing on the other side of the table. They are just as hesitant to take the risk, just as hesitant to make the decision, and they're looking to you to validate them. That's, a, that's an impasse by all, uh, all definitions. So <laughs> we end up just contributing to the propagation of this continued um, followership.
0: Hmm. So you're saying uh, seeing the world through the eyes of a spy is more of a leadership perspective?
1: Sort of. I would say that seeing the world through the eyes of a spy is, is more a realization that, that the world doesn't have to be dictated by someone else, that you have the power, you have the ability to challenge the status quo, to challenge the existing cycle and create something new. You know, when a spy is is out in the field or an intelligence officer is carrying out an operation, they're the only person in that space who knows what they're trying to do. They could be in a crowded city of 10,000 people and they are the only person who knows exactly what they're trying to accomplish, exactly how they're going to do it, exactly where they're going, exactly what their purpose is. That's a ton of responsibility, yes, but that's also an incredible amount of power. Internal empowerment, because you, nothing can distract you from your goal. You know what you're going to do, and you have the confidence to know that nobody else suspects you. When you come, if you could apply that type of energy to every decision that you make in your life, think about the possibilities. Now, instead of two spouses debating where they're going to go to dinner, one spouse says, I want Mexican food, and the other spouse says, I want Indian food. And instead of compromising, where they both decide to go to get Italian food that neither of them really wants, they can say, well, let's go have appetizers and happy hour at the Mexican place, and we'll go get the main course at the Indian place. And both people get what they want, and both people feel like they have been empowered to stand by their decision. That's, that's the whole purpose of everyday espionage, getting people to stop thinking the way that they've been conditioned to think and start reconditioning them to think the way they want to think. I'm very fond of, of communicating two, two specific words when I talk about this. Spies and, and intelligence officers in the world of espionage, that's a dark, villainous world. Those are are good people doing bad things for good reasons and trying to stop bad people from doing bad things for bad reasons. And that world is a world where manipulation rules. You have to manipulate to have your way. You have to outthink, outmaneuver, outperform, and manipulate your opponent to get what you want. And manipulation is the process by which you get other people to do what you want them to do. That is manipulation, getting other people to do what you want them to do. I am trying to use espionage concepts to motivate people instead of manipulate people. And the difference between manipulation and motivation is that motivation happens when you get someone to do something that they want to do. You manipulate somebody when you get them to do what you want them to do, but you motivate them when you get them to do what they want to do. The problem is that most people coming from a history of followership, they don't know what they want to do, or they don't have confidence that what they want to do is the right thing to do or acceptable or meaningful. So it's about reconditioning them to learn how to ask those questions, find that confidence and pursue what they want without fear of retribution or judgment. Hmm. I'm sorry for it's a lot of heady conversation Joel I hope I'm not boring you.
0: <laughs> no, it's quite fascinating. And and so it sounds like in order to be a spy when you find other people you want to motivate you're really trying to teach them to shift their world perspective to something like yours. To Well, I, I'm trying
1: I'm trying to shift their world perspective to something other than the common perspective. They don't Hmm. have to see things my way. I don't want people to to become clones of me. Then I'm just, all I'm doing is mutating the status quo into something different, right? What I want them to do is come and be challenged to see things differently and then decide for themselves which direction they want to go.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: I think that the best world is still ahead of us, and I think that that world is a world where everybody is empowered and educated and motivated to do what they are the best at, instead of trying to force themselves to fit into some stovepipe or some mold that other people have put them in. That's the dream that I'm pursuing. That's the dream that I have for my children. That's the impact I would love to make on this world before I move on to the next world, I want people to understand that the maximum impact that they can have comes from maximizing the potential that they already
0: have. Hmm, okay. When you break it down into the workshops, uh, what, what steps do you, or steps or tips, do you have people start with?
1: The workshop is built on Uh, a series of fundamentals. And this was, it's all very experimental because for anybody who's an entrepreneur or anybody who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that you have to start somewhere, but it's really stressful and and (laughs) kind of difficult (laughs) to decide where that first starting point is. Um, So for me, I decided to make the starting point for my workshop in understanding the pattern of espionage. So that's where I start is what is that pattern? And that pattern that I teach is very similar to the pattern that we already talked about when it comes to how we're conditioned to be followers. Um, So it's it's a pattern that I call contact, exchange, and compromise. And we've already talked about compromise. And contact and exchange are basically exactly what they sound like. Two people come in contact. They have some kind of exchange of information and ideas. And then ultimately, one of them compromises to the other That's the pattern of espionage. That is also the pattern in most sales exchanges. That's the pattern that advertisers seek to pursue when they make advertising. Um, In the case of my wife and I, she is way out of my league, so I needed her to compromise when I asked her to marry me, and luckily it worked. (laughs) But that's where I start is by teaching people to see the pattern. And once they can embrace that pattern, once they can see the pattern at work, then we go through a systematic series of lectures where we expand on how that pattern applies to different aspects of our life. We talk about networking professionally. We talk about how to strategically make decisions in the workplace so that you position yourself to get promotions or you position yourself to become a subject matter expert. We talk about how you can uh, apply espionage concepts to creating meaningful relationships and meaningful teams that will help you achieve the goals that you set. And then we talk about how to make a plan to get to those goals, and not just a plan, but how you make alternate plans and contingency plans so that you're not constantly frustrated when the plan doesn't go the way you want it to go. So it's a, a growth process, a building process, that takes the previous knowledge and then builds upon that to help you learn something different. That's how the lectures are designed to work, while at the same time, you know, weaving in that interesting thread of espionage. Famous espionage cases that you've heard of or not heard of, current modern day cases that are unclassified, you know, always respecting the fact that I have a lifetime non disclosure agreement with CIA where I cannot disclose current operations or current methods. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine line that I have to walk to teach people and give them the information to keep them uh, attentive and entertained while also respecting my commitment to CIA. Hmm.
0: What's one of the stories that you use to illustrate the everyday espionage?
1: Yeah, I have uh, there's a, a favorite story that I have has to do with a... Uh, a uh, college student from the late 2000s, late uh, 2010, 2009-ish, that, that area. There's a gentleman named Glenn Duffy Shriver. And if you if you do a quick Google search, you'll find your way to him. But, uh, but Glenn, Glenn Duffy Shriver, was a very talented, very intelligent college student who studied, who was American. He was from, I believe it was Michigan. And, uh, and he studied in Shanghai, to learn Chinese because he wanted to differentiate himself and learn a challenging language and apply that to the business world. Well, while he was in Shanghai, he was approached by a a Chinese journalist uh, who, you know, kind of posed as an academic asking him to create uh, a paper, write a paper in Chinese about American-Chinese relations and offered to pay him a few hundred renminbi or, you know, uh, 30-ish dollars in the U.S. Uh, monetary scale. Um, and he did. And this is, this is you know, it's, it's unassuming, it's natural enough to have, to be an academic, to be in a school, and to be approached by somebody who says, hey, we would love to get your opinion on something, can you write a quick paper? Um, it doesn't happen a great deal, but academics make a career out of writing papers for other people. So it, that's a very unassuming way of making contact. And if you recall, I said that the pattern to espionage always starts with contact. So here's contact. Contact is established. And Glenn Duffy Shriver goes on to write this paper and give this paper back to this this journalist, posed academic. And she pays him. Well, now what just happened is exchange. He gave her a paper in exchange for money. So contact and exchange. Those first two patterns, those first two pieces of that espionage pattern have just occurred. Well, now in the intelligence world, that female journalist for China has, con- has proven to herself and proven to her leadership that this American person will do what she tells them to do if there's money involved. So she gives Glenn additional tasking. Hey, Glenn, I need you to write a paper about just your current president or I need you to write a paper about how you think the president would react if China were to do X, Y, and Z. And on and on it goes, continuing this process of exchange where maybe they exchange more and more money with Glenn in exchange for academic papers. Hmm. And then that last piece, if you recall, the last piece of the pattern is compromise. Well, after, after this Chinese journalist has made, built a relationship of exchange with Glenn Duffy Shriver, she introduces him to her boss, Her boss is named, whatever, Mr. Lee or Mr. Chen. I'm not sure what the name was at this time. But then now the conversation becomes Mr. Chen asking Glenn if he will apply to the Department of State and become an internal U.S. Department of State officer because as a Department of State officer, his insights would be so much more important and they could pay him even more. You see Mm -hmm. where this is going? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And there it goes. And now we're, now Glenn is in the process of compromise. And ultimately Glenn applied to the State Department. He did not pass the exam. And then they paid, the Chinese paid him to go and apply to CIA. And during the CIA application process, that's when he failed the polygraph and they identified him as, at the, as under Chinese control. And now Glenn Duffy Shriver is serving a lifetime, um, a lifetime term in jail where he's become kind of a spokesperson for FBI to talk about how he was manipulated as a college student into, you know, potentially becoming a a deep cover mole for the Chinese without him really even understanding what he was doing. Mm -hmm. That is espionage. That is contact, exchange, and compromise. That is the ultimate end, the ultimate evil end when you let yourself be a follower and you let yourself constantly take your cues from other people. That's the worst-case scenario, and that's a story I, I often lean on when I try to emphasize that pattern.
0: Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Contact, exchange, compromise. Well, that's a great story that, that they made it really clear. Thank you.
1: Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. I'm getting a lot of fantastic feedback from you, Joel, so we might have to have these calls more <laughs> often.
0: <laughs> well i'm getting a lot of fantastic information i i uh, was really intrigued by the whole concept and really didn't know much about the world of of uh spycraft it's just fun to say that word and <laughs> <laughs> i feel like an operative myself at the moment uh, <laughs> and uh and and so it's really interesting i think it's you know the same way that uh, I, i'm a doctor and i uh I, I, I watch those shows about doctors. I go, why do people watch this? And I realize it's the same reason. We, we like to know how the world looks to other people. So you know, people like to watch shows about doctors or shows about lawyers when they're not lawyers. Well, if you're a lawyer, you're like, that's not real. That's not true. <laughs> you know, you're looking at it completely differently. <laughs> so I find it... Please don't
1: burst my bubble about Grey's Anatomy. Oh. I, need to, I, need to, I need to keep believing it's true.
0: Oh, everything there is true. <laughs> one of my friends once said but 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 it's like a soap opera and then my other friend said what's wrong with that <laughs> uh well life is like that sometimes so hey <laughs> oh I, and you know i i guess um you, you kind of talked about it from the perspective of the follower then so if if you're uh being a using these espionage tactics in your own life and using them for, uh, I guess, for a, a good end, um, how how do you differentiate that? How do you know that you're not manipulating versus motivating?
1: Absolutely. Uh, that's another very insightful question. It's something that that my wife and I constantly have to reflect upon. So if we're talking about followers, Obviously, the counterpoint role to a follower is a leader. And most of us kind of see the world in those two viewpoints. There's the follower and there's the leader. And that's the black and white. That's the yin and the yang. But in actuality, there's a third element. There's a third role in between the follower and the leader. That person is the independent. And the independent person is the one who uh, makes their decisions independently of the structure that surrounds them. So the risk to the independent is that that independent has to make the conscientious effort, whether they do good or whether they do ill on others or on themselves. And one of the things that's been very interesting to me about reflecting on my time at the agency is coming to terms with this idea of the hero and the villain And when you really look at heroes and villains, I find that you can't help but find yourself coming to a very narrow line. There's a very thin line that separates hero from villain. If you look at any superhero story, if you look at any uh, famous um, person in history, whether they were a villain or a hero, what you find is that heroes and villains have a great deal in common. Always very intelligent. Always very committed always very passionate. They always have a following. These individuals, these independents who find themselves at a place where they have to decide, do I use my skills to help or do I use my skills to hurt? Heroes find their way, obviously, to helping others, but they also have to constantly assess whether or not the decisions they're making are helping each time they make that decision. And I find, I find myself thinking about individuals like, um, like Hitler or like uh, Bin Laden. Here were people who were absolutely heroes to the people who were following them. And I have every belief that these villains from our perspective, not only did they passionately believe that what they were doing was the right thing, but they passionately believed every step of the way, that each new decision that they made was the right decision. And what happens there is that they lost sight of objective reality and they started to, to lean on their own subjective opinion. They stopped thinking about how other people looked at them and they became obsessed with how they look at the world. I'm fortunate enough to be married to a former agency officer and the two of us together we regularly reflect on what we are doing, why we are doing it, how we are doing it, to make sure that we constantly bring in that objective perspective where we are always assessing, are we still helping? Are we doing something that could be construed as hurting? Are we doing something that will make our children and our legacy proud? Or are we finding ourselves becoming that self-righteous Uh, egotistical bad guy who is so blind to what's going on around them that they don't even know they are the villain. So my answer to your question is that the, the way that we have any confidence that we are helping and not hurting is by surrounding ourselves with each other and with others who will keep us accountable by building a community of people who will help us make sure we stay on the right path, on the honorable path so that we don't slip too far.
0: Hmm. Oh, interesting. So it's really trying to stay in that place of the independent and really reflecting and questioning. It's a sort of an ongoing process of yeah, where it's and, absolutely.
1: and of course good. it's you know independents have the benefit of surrounding themselves with other independents, which means hmm. that everybody around you has their own independent perspective. Um, When followers surround themselves with other followers, there's a predominant mindset. And when leaders surround themselves with leaders, there's a predominant mindset. But when a true independent pairs up with another true independent, there is no predominant mindset because independents can choose to value and pursue whatever passions or interests they they
0: deem worthy. Hmm. And it would seem that uh, you, you're open to changing your mind. <laughs> you yeah, know, absolutely. Ad- like, new information comes in. Because I, exactly. I remember the, the the saying that, you know, history belongs to the victors. Like you said, if uh, Bin Laden won the war, then, you know, he would write the history books and <laughs> the, the the heroes would be uh, what he calls heroes. So it's kind of a... Exactly. History is a, something we look at from a perspective.
1: Of. Absolutely, sir. And when you, I mean, I think that's incredibly uh, relevant to this conversation because it it challenges us to look at the thing, look at history from our perspective, looking out, but also from others' perspectives, looking in.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Now, I see that as a great asset in, in sort of my world, more of a, one-to-one relationship not with the, you know the international world of spies mm-hmm. i would think of what you're talking about is really when you say put yourself in someone else's shoes we're talking about empathy so we're really talking about teaching that skill so on a personal level it feels like uh that's what you're teaching and that's that's how we come to understand each other that's how we create community that's you know it's, it's kind of funny how it, you're using language about spies and espionage and and it, it, sounds like separation and pulling apart and and what i hear is techniques to really bring people together so it's kind of interesting
1: yeah absolutely sir it's very it's very encouraging that you you see that that's the focus because that that's the hardest part about bringing people onto the same page with regards to everyday espionage because many people look at it and whatever their experience is with espionage and and i am surprised to see how many people have very intimate experience with espionage, whether parents were spies or parents or grandparents did something covert during, uh, you know, one of the conflicts, the Great American Conflicts, so Gulf, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, or World War II or Vietnam. Lots of people have a very intimate touch at some point in their life with, with the world of covert espionage. But then there's a lot of people who are just coming from, you know, spy fiction and multimedia entertainment. And when when they come in thinking that I'm going to teach them how to, you know, spy on their spouse and shoot the bad guy and escape into the night with an alias identity, I think they might be disappointed because that's not what we're in the business of doing.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I, I, I'm also intrigued by... Uh, something i read on on line there about um that you're challenging conventional thinking and giving new insight not just into our own lives but into current events and history and headlines and i i'm curious if you could say more about that
1: yeah absolutely so you know, we happen to live in a world where espionage has become mainstream uh you know uh, 10 years ago nobody talked about spying, and you would rarely ever see a headline about a spy case gone awry or a spy being captured or, you know, any kind of espionage operation. Um, The agency that I worked for uh, was very much about trying to stay out of the headlines, right? We had something called the New York Times test. If we decided that we were going to do an operation, uh, we had to ask ourselves, okay, well, if the New York Times finds out about this, what are we going to do? Is, and then is that, uh, is that the kind of thing where maybe we shouldn't do the operation at all because it would, it would not garner public support? Well, now we live in a world where espionage is in the headlines all the time. You can't go a week without having something about FBI or NSA or CIA or you know, Russian intelligence or Chinese intelligence. It's everywhere all the time. So when we live in a world where there's so much information about something that we know so little about, or even worse, something that has been, has been uh, conditioned in us as by mass media and entertainment, we don't really know what we're looking at. We don't know how to process or categorize or index that information. We don't know how to use it or interpret it. So a big part of what I try to do with everyday espionage is, is use current events as a way to challenge people to apply the concepts that we're learning right if you think about perspective versus perception again perception being you looking at the world through your own eyes and perspective being you looking at the world through someone else's eyes when you apply perception and perspective to a certain headline from a certain news source what does that do similarly if you take multiple multiple news sources that are all reporting on maybe the same topic, and you compare the information across each platform, where are the news stories overlapping, and where are they diverging? That helps you identify what is probably true news and what is probably spin. By applying, by teaching people these skills, we teach them how to interpret and evaluate the information that they're being presented. And that's not something that we do because we have an agenda. It's something that we do because we want people to understand how to neutralize the threats around them. And a news agency that's intentionally putting spin on information can be perceived as a threat. And I want individuals to be independent. I want individuals to be able to make their own decision, to come to their own conclusion, because that's where our world will grow. That's where the, that's where I want my legacy for my children to be, giving people the ability to make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions. So if I can help them understand how to identify and neutralize whatever the threat might be, whether it's an informational threat or whether it's a physical threat or whether it's a, a cognitive threat, then from my perspective, we're, we have done the right thing. And Current Events is an excellent venue for us to constantly challenge people with things that are that are surrounding them right now so that they can apply the lessons that we're teaching them and make those lessons permanent.
0: Hmm, okay. Well, why do you think it is that the world of, I guess, intrigue is always in the news these days? What What's different about the world now?
1: Well, I think that there's, there's certain things that are obvious. There's, uh, there's the significant uptick in uh, movies and video games and um, uh, press reports okay. yeah, that have to do with spies and spycraft, right? You've got multiple shows that have to do with spying, movies that have to do with spying. Uh, you've got questions in the media about uh, whether or not the American um, electoral system has been compromised uh, through espionage. So there's all types of um, different media avenues where espionage is becoming relevant or espionage is being spoken about on a regular basis. So no matter where you are, whether you whether you consume current events or whether you just consume movies or whether you just consume books, um, no matter who you are, you're finding an increase in volume, an increase in awareness to that topic. And I think that's why you see, uh, as a society, a net increase in consumption of that information.
0: Hmm. And... It's interesting that we live in such polarized times. It seems that what you're saying about seeing the world with perspective would give us more understanding of the world, you know, sort of open it up. And I I find most people are really married to their perspective. They're not willing to even uh entertain the fact that their perspective or their perception really is just one perspective. Uh, yeah why do you think that strong I, I guess that that
1: that mentality <laughs> exists,
0: right happens yeah
1: yeah so this is uh, I'm I'm gonna geek out a little bit with you Joel and I think that you'll appreciate it because you're a doctor for sure um, and I think that there's a number of folks out there who will also you know find the answer to be uh, interesting and hopefully entertaining but there's an actual scientific reason. There's, a, there's a, a psychological reason that explains exactly why we live in a polarized world and why it's so easy to polarize people. There's, there's these uh, cognitive behaviors that we have that are called cognitive biases. I'm sure you've heard of what a cognitive bias is. And there are a handful of cognitive biases that apply to this active polarization that we see from our own perspective. Now, for those of you who don't know what a cognitive bias is, a cognitive bias is basically a shortcut that your brain makes when processing information. To truly process information, there's a, a long mental process. The information has to be absorbed. It has to be synthesized. It has to be vetted. It has to be indexed. It has to be organized. And then it finds its way into your long and short-term memory. Well, cognitive biases allow the information process to skip multiple steps to go directly from uh, being consumed to being stored. So, But the problem is that that cognitive bias, the bridge that it creates, is skipping all of your logical reasoning functions. Um, And by skipping all of that logical reasoning, you never know whether the information that you're storing is accurate, trustworthy information. That's the problem with the cognitive bias. Now, there's a handful of biases, but some of the ones that apply to what we're talking about are things like the in-group bias or the confirmation bias. These are biases where when you, the in-group bias, for example, you surround yourself with people who think like you think, and your mind allows this bias to prevail in that scenario because. You belong to a group. You feel a sense of community when everybody around you shares the same perspective that you share. If you like Indian food or if you like you know, romantic comedies or if you like um, happy hour on Wednesday night and you surround yourself with other people who like the same things, you feel a sense of community. And then your mind starts to skip all of the various steps that come with absorbing and retaining information because it seeks this This sensation, this satisfaction of being part of a group. It's Mm. very similar with the confirmation bias. The confirmation bias is when you hear something so many times that you just start to accept what you're hearing as true. So, you know, if you hear that Burger King does it your way right away, if you hear that enough times, you're going to start to believe that Burger King does it your way right away, even though logically speaking, Burger King never does it your way right away. They do it their way every time. You just come in and pick which of their ways you want it done. <laughs> so this logical bias is exactly why, or this, this, uh, this cognitive bias is exactly why people are able to be polarized because other individuals, um, you know, whether it's camp- politicians who are campaigning or whether it's a marketing firm or whether it's some sort of uh, digital Uh, marketing or multimedia firm, they understand how the mind works. They understand how a bias works. So they understand that if they can expose you to a certain message enough times, then your cognitive bias will start to set in and you will have a way of believing things. You will have a way of storing information they give you and then they have essentially an advantage over you because they have compromised you through a system of contact, exchange, and compromise. That is a perfect example of how everyday espionage happens in our everyday
0: life. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, a... <laughs> I think I go on for hours and hours. It's quite fascinating how uh, <laughs> I help into the mind. And uh, I can link it to other, you know, other things I've studied and uh, like you said, from the world of doctoring and so forth.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I can only imagine as a medical professional what you've seen. Um, with bedside manner being something that's, you know, vitally important to your work and having to have conversations with family and friends and people who have all varying levels of different types of uh, illness or disease, it's, it's amazing to me to think about um, what doctors must have to go through and how they must have to learn many of these skills, you know, in the trenches.
0: And then just what you said of understanding perspective, I think, is really important. Uh, what's important to me may not be important to you, so I have to figure out how I can help you with your your goals, which is very different. Um, hopefully, we have the same goals, but not always. Uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. I appreciate the introduction into the world of spycraft. I, I know we're running out of time, and I'm curious about uh, where you plan to take all this, uh, these yeah, workshops absolutely information.
1: We've had a fantastic first round. So the, the lecture series was open to a very limited audience. It was opened only in the city of St. Petersburg to those people in the Tampa Bay area. Um, it was kind of an opportunity for us to test the content, but also a chance for us to contribute to our community. We are Tampa Bay, uh, a Tampa Bay family. We love our we love our city in St. Pete. We love supporting individuals who are trying to build their businesses and build their careers here in St. Petersburg. Um, but we obviously have plans to expand, and we want to expand because we want to take this message to the world. So uh, some of the things that we have currently in the, in the works, our own little skunk works, if you will. Uh, we have a podcast, uh, a podcast that is actually a podcast. So it has a video and an audio component. Uh, that we are building out, and we'll be looking to launch that in the fall of 2018, uh, excuse me, the winter of 2018, or possibly the spring of 2019. That'll be our first opportunity to spread uh, the kind of content that you and I discussed through a very systematic uh, format, through podcast to an international audience, anybody who consumes mm. podcasts. Uh, similarly, we are also, of course, continuing our lecture series, refining our lecture series, in the intention of taking that lecture series on tour. So taking it to various cities, to to various uh, corporate and nonprofit communities so that we can help spread the message, help teach people a different way of thinking, um, and help equip people for the world that that they're facing today and the world that they're going to continue to face in the future. And then we're also developing a a whole new experience besides lectures uh, because the best way to learn how to think, and live like a spy is to be immersed in a spy's world. Uh, So we're actually developing a one-day experience, a one-day immersive experience, where we will take people in the morning, teach them certain concepts uh, that have to do with uh, living and operating an alias, um, making decisions based off of the resources that you have at hand, and executing a series of objectives in the field, and then actually putting them in alias, and sending them out into the world to execute these objectives. Um, that is a one-day course that we're working on, and we call it Everyday Espionage, StreetCraft. And just like our lecture series, that StreetCraft will, will launch from here in St. Petersburg. Um, we, uh, we, just announced, we just announced that first running yesterday, and we have already filled, uh, filled our, our attendance sheet by 50%. So uh, we expect that we'll have to run that multiple times. And then we will also, when we take the lecture series on tour, we'll be taking StreetCraft on tour so that folks have the, the opportunity to experience both uh, either in their hometown or in a destination city like Chicago or D.C. or uh, St. Paul, whatever it might be. So uh, those are some of the things that we have in the works. And then, of course, we have long-term ambitions for a three-day course and a five-day course that continues to grow on the skills and and equip people with everything that they need to remain physically, mentally, and informationally safe uh, in whatever Mm. world they choose to put
0: themselves in. Oh, that's great. You're doing lots of great things. If you were going to leave the listeners with, I I guess, one, one sentence, what would you tell them?
1: One sentence. That's a challenge.
0: I know. (laughs) I would
1: tell listeners that they only have one life to make their decisions from and that one life should not be compromised.
0: Mm, Beautiful. One life, no compromises. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Uh, uh, For all those out there, it's my guest, uh, Andrew Bustamante. You can find him online at andrewbustamante.org. Again, thank you for joining this podcast, Living the Present Moment, with people of passion and purpose doing interesting things, Living the Present Moment. Stay tuned at livingthepresentmoment.com. Thanks again. Thank you, Joel.